0: Alright, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. As I mentioned uh, earlier, we're going to be taking a purposeful pause to consider what has now been introduced to us in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Let's just look at the first two verses here. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here we have the first introduction in this book of this concept called the kingdom of heaven. And you'll notice in chapter 3 and verse 2, John the Baptist is preaching it. He goes through and talks about the fruitfulness that is necessary for it. Then if you go into chapter 4, after the temptation of Christ, he returns. Verse 12, John is now being brought into custody. And you'll note in Matthew 4 verse 17, Jesus began to preach... And to say, repent, for the what is at hand? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so right away, here in these first two verses, right before we even get to this first discourse here in the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, we have this introduction by John. Repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand then you have John being brought imprisonment, and now you have Jesus, and he's preaching the exact what? The exact same message. Repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in chapter 4 of Matthew, you have this summary statement of Jesus' ministry in verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, of the, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So Jesus is preaching, repent. Why should you repent? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew sums all this up in Jesus' own preaching by saying that he was preaching the gospel, the good news of what matter? The kingdom. And so we need to pause and take a few moments over Lord willing today and Lord willing next Lord's Day to consider this manner of the kingdom of God. My purpose is really just to introduce it. It is a subject, very comprehensive, very much in depth, and in some ways can be confusing. There is great error out there among believing people concerning the kingdom of God. Some people believe that the church is the kingdom of God. It is not. Some people think that um, that kingdom is, will never be, and that's not so. And so there's all kinds of faults about the kingdom. There's no way we can give a comprehensive study on this. In fact, if you went and did a search for comprehensive studies, one popular uh, book on the kingdom of God runs close to four to 500 pages. And it took his whole life in ministry, basically, to be able to come up with this, at least in his perspective, this view of the kingdom of God. My purpose is to give a framework and to give us a taste and perhaps even recover somewhat our understanding of the kingdom of God. The book of Matthew contains more references to the kingdom than any other book of our New Testament. There is, by my count, and that count could be wrong, but by my count, 53 times the word kingdom is mentioned. In fact, in our scripture reading, In Matthew chapter 5, you have verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have verse 10 in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he concludes, in our scripture reading at least, in verses 19 and 20, by saying this, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the what? You will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so right away, there in just the first 20 verses of Matthew chapter 10, you have four references to the kingdom of heaven. Out of the 53, just tracing that word kingdom. If you add to that the word reign because kings reign, right? And you add to the word king, you are far above 53 times in the book of Matthew concerning the king, his reign, and his kingdom. In fact, if you have a promised king, and we do, he is the Son of God, jesus christ a king has to exercise rule or he's not a king we call that reigning and of course we do know as new testament believers that jesus christ is seated on a what throne Throne, presently reigning in some fashion or form or connection And if we have a king, and if we have a king who is reigning, he has to reign over something or someone, and we call that a what? We call that a kingdom. And so Matthew definitely presents Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And being the Son of God, He is the promised king. Or we could use another word. We could use the word Messiah. The word Messiah in the Old Testament is used in reference to kingship, to rulership. And so we have that used of Him. God would say in Psalm 2, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So, does God have a king? He does. Has he chosen this person? He has chosen him. He is going to be set upon my holy hill of Zion. And he has chosen that king. And he has declared a decree concerning that king. The Lord has said to that king, Psalm 2, you are my son. So we know the king is God's who? God's own son. And then it says, this day I have begotten you, or I have manifested you as my son, and as my king, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 33, says that that day in which that king was made manifest to all the world was the day of Jesus Christ' resurrection. In his incarnation, he was born what? He was born king. But on his resurrection, it was made manifest. It was made evident. This is my son, whom I have chosen as king over heaven and earth. So this fact of Jesus Christ being the king is no small matter. In fact, here in this book... Matthew, he actually begins by showing the divine Genesis of this king. He is the Son of God. He is the seed of the woman. And that seed was promised in what book? Genesis. It was promised after Adam fell. That of the seed of the woman, God would raise up this seed. This seed has divine origin. And the seed has earthly origin. And that is, he is Abrahamic. So he would be born of what nation? The Jew. And he is Davidic. He is of the seed of David. Now we know he is of the household of David. And the household of David was promised that that messianic king would be born of his lineage. All the Old Testament prophets look forward to that birth was he born he was born and he was born if you look at matthew 1 verse 16 jacob was the father of joseph the husband of mary of mary jesus was born who is called the messiah He is called the king. He is called the Christ. And folks, he came, this is what we know from Matthew chapter 1 and 2, that king came and received a name. His title is Messiah. His title is the Christ. But he received a name, and that name is what? Jesus. Why was he named that particular name? Because his incarnation and his first coming was to save. His people from their what, from their sins. That was the aim and the purpose of this king, the Son of God, who is Emmanuel, God with us, both one hundred percent deity, one hundred percent man. He came in His first incarnation, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, not to set up an earthly kingdom, but to save people of the kingdom. And did He do that? He did do that. This is something that the Jew did not understand those earthly disciples did not understand this. And, folks, here's one of the reasons why they did not understand it, just beyond the fact <clears throat> that it was hidden from them. They didn't understand it because <clears throat> the kingdom was progressively revealed. Our Bibles have a progression of revelation. For instance, if we say that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, is that revelation? Is that knowledge and with spiritual illumination understanding? The answer to that is what? Yes. But that's not all the revelation that God gives concerning the seed of the woman. It begins to be progressively more and more revealed as God gives to us the Bible. In fact, turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is going to give in parables what He calls the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And you'll notice in verse 10, Matthew 13, the disciples came and said to Him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know something. To know what? The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. What is a mystery? We talk about the parable of the seed and the sower. We talk about the parable of the tares among the wheat. We talk about the parable of the growth of the seed. What are these parables? They are mysteries of the kingdom of who? of heaven, what is a mystery? Something previously hidden, but now what? Revealed. Everybody see that? So when we come Lord willing, to Matthew chapter 13, what we will be learning and seeing is something having to do with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus is now revealing as the king To his people. So, going back to what I was saying, we have the kingdom instituted, we'll look at this tonight, in Genesis. And we have a promised king promised in Genesis. And a king must reign, and a king must have a kingdom. And our understanding of that kingdom and its relationship to the dispensations of God is gradually and progressively revealed even to the place where Jesus Christ himself is revealing to what group of people? The disciples' mysteries of the kingdom. That which had been hidden, but now is being revealed. So that they would have an understanding of the majesty, the glory, the wisdom of God in His plan for the ages. This kingdom of God is all throughout, as I mentioned, the book of Matthew. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. Let's just look at a very, very familiar passage. Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and He's telling us not to serve two masters, not to carry about in our souls a certain care and worry and anxiety that the world has, Concerning food and drink, concerning clothing, sustaining our material bodies. He says, Don't do that. Why? Because your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of such things. He created the need, didn't He? But what does He say to do? Verse 33. You've memorized this. But seek first His what? Let's say it. We're to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So, don't worry about tomorrow. Folks, I think, I think when we read Matthew 6 verse 33, I think we read it accurately. But in practice, this is how we read it. But seek first His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Because this aspect of the kingdom is not very motivating for us. If I would say to you, stop worrying, but seek His kingdom, would you say, that is so motivating to stop worrying? No, you wouldn't say that, and here's why we're not affected by it, because... We don't understand it. We're like seven year old children who come up, and this is good and this is appropriate. They come up here and they line up, and we say, I want you to quote, we'll make up something. We want you to quote Psalm 1. And they're all up here, five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. They're all up here, and they quote Psalm 1. Isn't Isn't that great? But if you ask them what Psalm 1 means, they go, uh, no. And brethren, don't we know from First Corinthians 14 that if we speak something without understanding, it profits us nothing. Now, can their memorization of that psalm be made profitable? Yes. And in that sense, they need to memorize boatloads of Scripture just like you and I need to memorize boatloads of Scripture. But unless we're reading our Bibles with understanding, you might as well be reading French or German or Greek or Hebrew. And that's really my passion. When I read, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, I want an understanding of that verse to be affecting my affections, my motivations to actually walk in light of that verse. Don't you? And not just come to it with some preconceived, I've read it, there it is, okay. And it not be motivating. But this is what our Lord says Seek first his kingdom. What does that mean? Well, evidently, when Jesus gave, Matthew 6, 33, the kingdom must not have been where? It must not have been there. Or you wouldn't be what? Seeking, Seeking it. And yet we know John and Jesus said the kingdom of God is at If you turn over to Matthew chapter 12, I'm just picking out a few references here. Pharisees accuse our Lord of casting out demons by Beelzebub. Jesus Christ is the King. He's born King. He's been manifested as king at his resurrection, but he says in verse 28, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, what does that mean? Pharisees were supposed to understand that. And folks, I'll give you a little hint about this because Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Hear what he says. The kingdom of God. Did you hear that? Paul's writing this. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in What? Power. What is Jesus showing here? When he cast out a demon, what is he showing? Power. And Paul goes on in the church at Corinth and says I don't don't want to know their fancy rhetoric. I don't want to know their fancy arguments. What I want to see is the power of God in their lives. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You're seeing it right before my eyes. Your eyes. That's amazing. Or we could go over to Matthew chapter 19. (coughs) Matthew chapter 19. This is another amazing statement. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 23 because it will be relevant for us later on. I won't have to turn back to it. This is the instance of the rich young ruler who turns away from our Lord. And Jesus said to His disciples, Matthew 19, verse 23, Truly I say to you, It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You believe that? Verse 24. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, what we have here is the kingdom of heaven in verse 23 and the kingdom of God in verse 24 are used in the same way, right? Folks, is it shocking to you and to me who live in America that wealth is actually a stumbling block to a person being saved? And we're certainly seeing that in our nation, don't we? Why do I need to be saved if I can have Disney World today? And again, when he says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, he's implying that the kingdom of heaven is not then, it's somewhere in the future. How hard is it? Well, try to put a camel through the eye of a needle. Impossible? That's pretty hard. Something would have to happen to that man. Or if you go over to Matthew chapter 21. This would have been shocking to the Pharisees. He gives a parable of the two sons, and he says here, a man has two sons, verse 28, and a man says, son, go work today in my vineyard. And the son says, I won't do it, verse 29, but afterward he regretted and went. In verse 30, the man comes to the second, says the same thing, and the man says, I will, but he didn't do it. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before who?" Wow. So is there a kingdom that's to be entered? Yes or no? Yes. And Jesus is exhorting people to seek that kingdom first. And He's actually telling people that if you trust in your wealth and you trust in your own righteousness... You're not going to get in. And, folks, the one who is saying that is the ruler of the kingdom. Christ. You're here in Matthew 21, look down in verse 43. Jesus speaks of that nation's rejection of Him. He quotes the Psalms. Psalm 118 in verse 42, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people. What kind of people? People who produce the fruit of the what? Kingdom. Everybody see that? That's amazing. So was the kingdom, as it were, taken away from that nation? Yes. It's going to be given to a people who produce the fruit thereof. And folks, this is what John the Baptist preached. He said, look, you either make the tree good or the tree bad. (laughs) Right? (coughs) A good tree can't bring forth bad fruit. And a bad tree can't bring forth what? Good fruit. The kingdom concept which began in Genesis and was introduced by Revelation after the fall is progressively revealed. It has a king. It has an ethnicity. It is of an earthly people, the Jew, And that king reveals mysteries about that kingdom. And we are to seek first that kingdom. Now folks, why why is it that we don't have in our minds and on our speech more content about this coming kingdom? Now, we can't answer that definitively, but I do think in our generation. And when I say our generation, I'm not talking about, you know, the baby boomers. I'm talking about this present age in which we're living. There has been, in some cases, a deliberate downplaying of what we call eschatology, or the doctrine of last things. There arose a generation that basically said, I've had this said to me many times, that eschatology, understanding future events, is so difficult that in essence we really shouldn't even try to understand it. And if we try to understand it, we need to remember that there's so many views about it that we really can't ever be sure, confident in our souls that what we understand from the Bible is accurate. And because we're not sure about future things, we need to be really careful about teaching it, or even talking about it, And so preaching and teaching on the second coming of Christ? When's the last time you heard a message on the second coming of Christ from present generation preachers? When have you heard this affection of heart in a church, in conversation among God's people of, you know, I was thinking this morning about the second coming of Christ and my heart just went out in love and affection for this and I actually prayed what Jesus told us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Or my heart echoed what Paul wrote Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Are the last verses in our Bible, John says, Lord, come quickly. When's the last time you encouraged one another with those things? And I think another reason is because of our overwhelming obsession with just trying to make it through the day mentality. Lord, just give me something out of my Bible that's going to help me get me through the day and give me some measure of encouragement. Because this future stuff, which is incomprehensible and not understandable, and there's so many viewpoints and conflicting ideas about it all around, that's not going to help me much anyway. I mean, that's guaranteed to me. I don't need to know anything about it. I'm his. I'm going to be there. I'll just be shocked when I get there. Because I just need to know how to deal with my finances and fixing the car and handling the kids and putting up with my wife or my husband, and that's it. And folks, I'm just going to let you know, and you can check me out on this, that is not the New Testament perspective of living. At all. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, you are waiting. You are waiting for the revealing of Christ from heaven. That was a characteristic of that local New Testament assembly. If you went into that local New Testament assembly, you would walk away saying, These people are in anticipation of something to come, and because of that anticipation, they are striving to walk a worthy walk. Brethren, those doctrines are not dead. They don't need to be, as it were, recovered, but they do need to be revived in our heart, in our life as an individual believer, and in our churches today. And I hope that as we go through this, this afternoon, next week, I hope that you will have tasted enough to want to go in and make this a rock bed in your heart and in your life. Because it is essential that we know this. It's not optional. And I want to take your Bible, I'm going to go outside the book of Matthew here in a couple of places as we conclude. I want you to turn to the book of John. And I want you to turn to John chapter 3. The book of John only mentions the kingdom by word three times. Twice in John chapter 3. Once, Jesus is before Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you a king? And Jesus says to him, My kingdom is not of this what? Did you hear that? If it were of this world, my servants would fight. But being it's not of this world, my servants will not fight. That's a fascinating passage, isn't it? But in John chapter 3, probably a passage that you've quoted. We have a man whose name is Nicodemus. And he comes to Messiah, the King. And he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Amen to that. Good insight. Not far enough, but good insight. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see what? He didn't say heaven, did he? Unless you're born again, you won't see what? The kingdom of God. He's going to repeat it after Nicodemus, who's thinking earthly, says, how can a man be born when he is old? Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, referring to the new covenant in the prophet Ezekiel, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So folks, according to this verse, is there a future kingdom? According to this verse, what must happen for you to enter into this kingdom? You must be born. Amen? You've got to be born again or born from above. Not only to enter the kingdom, but even to see it. That's an amazing statement. And folks, you and I use John chapter 3 all the time, don't we? And yet, I would dare say, as I haven't, and probably as you haven't, when you've explained the verse, you probably have given no explanation to the phrase, the kingdom of God. If you go back to Matthew chapter 18, here's another amazing thing that our Lord says. And you know the situation. The disciples come to Christ and ask Him, Who's the greatest in the kingdom? That kind of betrays a little hidden motive, doesn't it? Verse 2, Jesus calls a child to Himself and sets the child before them and says... Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a what? Like a child, you will not enter. So, do you have to be born? Yes or no? That's conversion. Repentance plus faith is conversion. And upon conversion, you're going to grow more and more what? Childlike. Everybody see that? If you don't do that, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Now, folks, he's not talking about the naivety of a child. Those disciples more than likely didn't even know who this child is. What was the example of the child? Jesus called the child. What did the child do? Tell me. He came forth. He obeyed. That's what it means to become childlike. Humility. Gentleness. And folks, all of these are amazing statements. I want to conclude by us turning to the book of Acts. We'll look at three passages and then we're done. The importance of the book of Acts in relationship to our topic is because in the book of Acts we actually get to see and hear not only the manifestation of the church, we get a glimpse into what was preached. And so in Acts chapter 1, we have a summarization of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ that occurred over a 40-day period. And I want you to know, verse 3, Acts 1, the subject of those 40 days. To these, that is, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning what? The kingdom of God. So, Jesus Christ, in His post-resurrection appearance to these apostles, was appearing to them and conversing, and I think understood, teaching them further about what subject? The kingdom of God. Now folks, that that makes the subject pretty important. He's only got 40 days, right? Well, how does that impact? Well, turn to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17... We have Paul. He's preaching at Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is a Gentile city. There's Jews and Gentiles there. And it says that it was Paul's custom, Acts chapter 17, verse 2, to go to the synagogue and for three Sabbaths Reason with them from the scriptures. Now what was he doing? Verse 3. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, or the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is who? He is the Christ is the Messiah. Everybody see that? I don't think we have any issues with that. But Paul gets in trouble. And he gets in trouble with the authorities, not that he was doing anything wrong. And in this same chapter, they, verse 5, the Jews... took some wicked people from the marketplace and they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason and they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Evidently they were going to what? They are going to kill them. Verse 6, And when they did not find them, they begin dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. So now they're taking them to court. And this is what they were shouting. These men who have upset who? The world. Have come here also. Verse 7. And Jason has welcomed them. And here's the accusation they all act contrary to the decrees of caesar in what way folks what way were they against the decrees of caesar they were preaching that there was another what king whose name is jesus And folks, what that means is that when Paul was explaining and giving evidence that Christ or the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead, he was doing it in relationship to him being king and the coming kingdom, and they preached it and proclaimed it. Now listen, that was the message that upset the world. Just like Psalm 2 said. Everybody see that? And folks, if the church today lived for another time and another place, we would not be putting our confidences in politics and elections and men. We would be established and firm because we have a king. And his reign is righteous. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> and the reason why evangelical believers, of which we're part of this huge, homogenous group of people, are putting their confidences in arrogant, stiff-necked, rebellious people is because we have no blessed hope in our soul. All we have is this life. Now we say we have a blessed hope. But in walk, we don't live like it. as we go to the end of the book of Acts, what we will find is that this is what Paul preached to Jew and Gentile. Acts 28, verse 23, And when they had set a day for Paul, Paul's in shackles in his own lodging, they came to him in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying, this is a sober message, solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God? Is he teaching them about the kingdom of God? And trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Folks, there's plenty of content about this. And in verse 28, Paul tells (coughs) those Jews, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to what people? Gentiles. And they will what? They'll listen. Verse 30, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching, what? The kingdom of God. And teaching concerning the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, with all openness, unhindered. And did Gentile people hear. He did here. Folks, this earthly kingdom has not yet arrived. It is still future. But it is the affectionate, motivating factor for all that the church is to be engaged in. Paul said in 2nd Timothy He he Christ will deliver me from every evil thing and present me at his appearing and kingdom To God be the glory. The kingdom of God. Huge. Huge. Should it be gripping? It should be gripping. Because if you're born again, one of the reasons why you got born again is to enter into this future kingdom. Let's pray.